Chapter 8, Part 1 of How to Write Short Stories with Examples by Ring Lardner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kurt from Tucson, Arizona. Chapter 8, A Frame-Up, Part 1. A stirring romance of the Hundred Years' War, detailing the adventures in France and Castile of a pair of well-bred weasels. The story is an example of what can be done with a stub pen. 1. I suppose you could call it a frame, but it wasn't like no frame that was ever pulled before. They's been plenty where one guy was paid to lay down. This is the first I heard of where a guy had to be bribed to win. And it's the first where a bird was bribed and didn't know it. You know, they've postponed the match with Britain. Nate said at first that his boy wasn't ready yet, but the papers all kidded him. Because anybody that's seen Burke in the Kemp fight knows he's ready. So Nate had to change his story and say Burke had hurt one of his hands on Kemp's egg. And he wasn't going to take no chance boxing again till he was okay. Which mightn't be for a couple of months. Say, Kemp's head may be hard, but it ain't hard enough to hurt one of them hands of Berkey's. He could play catch with Big Bertha. No, there's another reason why Nate asked for a postponement of the Britain date. It's got to be another frame-up that may take a long while to fix. And he ain't got no plans yet. Until he's all set, he'd be a dumbbell to send Burke against a man as good as Jack Britton. The papers has printed a lot of stuff about Burke, how he ain't only been boxing a little over a year and won't be 21 till next July, and five or six bouts is all he's been in, and now look at him offered a match for the welterweight championship and $10,000 win, lose, or draw. But if they knew Burke like some of us knows him, they could write a book. Because he certainly is Duke of the Cuckoos and the world's greatest sap. How they got him ready for the Kemp bout is a story in itself, but it won't come out till he's through with the game. So what I tell you is between you and I. It was one afternoon about a year ago. Bill Brennan was in Kid Howard's gymnasium in Shy working out, and they was a gang looking on. Howard seen one boy in the crowd that you couldn't help from noticing. He was made up for one of the hicks in way down east. He'd bought his collar in Akron, and his coat sleeves died just south of his elbow. From his pants to his vest was a toll call. He had never shaved, and his whiskers was just the right number and length to string a violin. Thinks Howard to himself, If you seen a stage group dressed like that, you'd say it was overdone. Well, it got late and the gang thinned out, till finally there wasn't nobody left but Howard and this sap. So Howard asked him if he wanted to see somebody. Yes, said the kid. I want to see a man that can learn me to fight. So Howard asked him if he meant box. Box or fight, I don't care which, just so's I can learn the rules, said the hick. Did you ever box, says Howard? No, 
says the kid. But I can learn quick, and I'm willing to pay for it. I got plenty of money. I got pretty close to $700. Howard asked him what was his name and where he come from in his business. My name's Burke, and I work on my old man's farm, he says. It's across the lake outside of Benton Harbor. We raise beaches. Has your old man got money, asked Howard. Plenty, says the kid. Well, said Howard, if you work on a farm, you're getting plenty of exercise, and if your old man's rich, you ain't after the sugar. So what's the idea of going into this game? I don't want to go in no game, he says. I just want to learn good enough so I can win this one match, and then I'm through. What one match, says Howard? With Charlie Porter, says Burke. Well, of course you've heard of Charlie Porter. He's a Benton Harbor boy, too. He'd fought Lewis twice and Britain once, and he'd give them both a sweet battle. He was considered about fourth or fifth best amongst the welters. So it struck Howard funny that this green rube that hadn't never boxed should think he could take a few lessons and then be good enough to beat a boy like Porter. You're an ambitious kid, he says to him. But if I was you, I'd take my 700 men and invest it some other way. Porter's had 40 fights, and that's what counts. You could take all the lessons in the world, and he'd make a monkey out of you. Unless you're a boy wonder or something. But even if you are, you couldn't get no match with Porter till you'd proved it. And that means you'd have to beat some other good boys first. So Burke said, All I come to Chicago for is to take some boxing lessons. They told me you was the man to come and see. If I'm willing to pay the money, it shouldn't ought to make no difference to you if I get a match with Porter or not, or if I lick him or not. That's right, said Howard. Only I ain't no burglar or no con man. I'm in this business for money, but I don't want to take nobody's money without they get what they think they're paying for. And if you had seven million smackers, I couldn't guarantee to make you a good boxer. Not good enough to land you a match with Porter. I ain't asking you to land no match, says Burke. I'll tend to that part. He'll fight me as soon as I think I'm ready. If he don't, I'll run him out of Michigan. He wouldn't dast stay round if everybody was saying I had him scared. And that's what they'd say if he wouldn't fight me. Why would they, says Howard. He's in the game for money, too. And he couldn't get no money for a bout with a guy like you that nobody ever heard of. They wouldn't no club match you up. I won't have no trouble getting matched up, says Burke. Fitzsimmons will put us on right there in Benton Harbor. The town's nuts over Porter, and they'll pay to see him any time. And whatever purse they offer is all his. I'll fight him for nothing. Oh, says Howard, that makes it different. You're sore at him. No, says the hick, I'm not sore at him. You just don't like him, says Howard. I don't know if I like him or not, said Burke. I don't even know him. But for some reason you want to give him a trimming, says Howard. Well, listen, boy, I understand there's no capital punishment in your state, so it looks to me like you'd run less risk of getting killed if you'd sneak in Porter's house some night while he's asleep and kiss him on the brow with a meat axe. Burke didn't crack a smile. That wouldn't get me nowheres, he said. There's a reason I got to box him. If you can learn me all right. If not, I'll go somewheres else. 
So Howard made a date for him to come back the next day. 2. Well, when the kids stripped for action, Howard's eyes popped out. With them comic clothes on, he'd looked awkward. He was a picture with them off. Howard says he felt like inviting the best sculptures in Shy to come and take a look. I was going to box with him myself, says Howard, but not after I seen them shoulder muscles. I figured I didn't have enough insurance to justify me putting on the gloves with this bird. So I made Joe Rivers take him. Well, they could see in a minute that the Rube was a born boxer. He was fast as a streak, and in one lesson he learned more than most boys picks up in a month. They just showed him how to stand, and the rest seemed to come natural. In a little while, Joe, with all his experience, was having trouble to land, whereas Berkey was hitting Joe as often as he felt like. Only he didn't put no zip in his punches. He pulled them all. Cut loose once, says Howard. Let's see if you can knock him down. Oh, no, said Berkey. This ain't in earnest. Rivers looked just as well satisfied. But Howard says, You got to be in earnest even when you're just working out. There's lots of boys as strong as you that don't know how to get their strength into their punch. That's a thing that's got to be learnt, and I can't learn you if I can't see you wallop. No, says Burke, I ain't going to hurt nobody for nothing. And all Howard's coaxing done no good. He wouldn't cut loose. But at the end of the six weeks, he stuck round Howard's. He was one of the sweetest boxers you ever seen, and Howard thought so well of him that he tried to sign him up. Let me handle you, Berkey, he says. I'll get you on in Milwaukee, and I'll take you down east and make you some money. And if you're handled right, there's no reason why you shouldn't be welterweight champion someday. I don't want to be welterweight champion, said Burke. I just want to be champion of Charlie Porter. And when I beat him, I'm through. All right, says Howard. You know what you want. But let me tell you one thing. You won't beat Porter or no one else if you just pet them. You've got a hit. The kid smiled. I'll hit when it's time, he says. So that was the last Howard heard of him till pretty near a month later when he picked up a paper and read where young Burke, a farmer boy living outside of Benton Harbor, had stopped Charlie Porter, an aspirant for the welterweight title, in one round. Three. About a month more went by before Burke showed up in Shy again and called on Nate. As soon as he mentioned his name and where he was from, Nate was interested, because Howard had told him about his experience with the kid. But Berkey wasn't made up no more like Howard had described him. He was wearing the best suit of clothes $20 could buy. I went to see Howard, he says, but he's out of town, so I come to you. I want to go in the fight game. I understood from Howard, says Nate, that you was going to quit after that one bout. I thought I was, says Berkey, but it's different now. You see, I and my old man has busted up, so I got to make a living. What was the bust up over, asked Nate. Didn't he like you boxing? 
He didn't care nothing about that, says the kid. But they was a gal he wanted I should marry, and I gave her the air, so he done the same to me. Why did you quit the gal, asked Nate. I figured I could do better, he says. She's just a gal round home there, and why should I marry her? I can pretty near pick who I want to marry. Everybody can pick who they want to marry, says Nate. Yes, but who I pick I can pretty near have, says the kid. I thought I was stuck on this gal, but I found I wasn't. I had seen hardly any other gals, and she was always around. So I thought she was about the only gal in the world. I know better now. But I did like her, and my old man liked her, and kept after me to ask her. So I asked her, and she told me she was stuck on somebody else. So I asked her who it was, and she said Charlie Porter. She didn't know him, but she'd seen him on the street a lot of times, and he'd smiled at her. She thought he was handsome and made a hero out of him. He was the best fighter in the world, to her mind. So I said I could beat him, and she laughed at me. She says, you might beat him plowing. So I said, I can beat him boxing. So she says, all right, you do it and I'll like you better than him. So I came up here and took a few lessons and knocked him cockeyed. When she seen me afterwards, she throwed her arms around my neck and said I was the best man in the world and we got engaged. But during the time I was up here in shy learning to box, I learned to dance too. And I bought me these good clothes. So after I trimmed Porter, I got to going over to St. Joe to the pavilion nights. And I seen all the gals was nuts over me. So I said to myself, What's the idea of tying up to this rube gal when you can marry somebody that is somebody? Maybe one of these rich Chicago society dames. So I gave this hick the air and my old man throwed me out of the house. Well... Nate's handled a lot of boxers and never seen one yet that despised himself. But after he'd listened to this bird a while, he began to think that all the rest of them was lilies of the valley. Which Chicago Society gal have you picked out, he says to lead him on. I don't know yet, says Berkey. Some of them at the dances in St. Joe look good, but I want to see them all before I tie myself up. If you've ever been to St. Joe... You know the Chicago Society gals that attends them dances. If you want to see one of them in the middle of the week, go up to the draperies and ask for men. You got the right dope, Nate says. You'd be a sucker to make a choice till you'd looked over the whole field. And in the meanwhile, I'll try to get you fixed up with a couple of matches so as you can grab some spending money. But Burke was still thinking of the dames. I read a great story the other day, he says. It was a young fellow that was a boxer. And one night he was walking along the street and he heard a gal scream. She was up on the porch of a big house and there was a dude there trying to make love to her. So she didn't like him. And that's why she screamed. So this young fellow went in and grabbed the dude and knocked him for a long trip. So the gal got stuck on this young fella, the boxer, and married him. And she turned out to be a millionaire. A great story, said Nate. I certainly wish I could have read it. But suppose he'd married her and then found out that her old man made automobiles and owed everybody. A young fellow can't be too careful who he lets marry him. And if I was you, I'd go slow. 
In the first place, most of the gals with the real class and the big money lives in New York. So why not wait till you win a couple of bouts in Milwaukee or somewheres so as I can get you dated up in the big town? Then you can walk up and down 8th Avenue and help yourself to the cream. This was to stall him along so he'd forget the skirts for a while and tend to business. Nate made him work out every day and box with some of the boys. But he was just as shy of a punch as when Howard had him. Cut loose and slug, Nate told him. What for, he says. To show me if you've got a haymaker, says Nate. Ask Porter if I have, said the kid. Finally, Nate got him matched with Red Harris in a semi-wind-up at Milwaukee. Harris can wallop, but he's slow. Well, Berkey made him look like he was handcuffed. Red never laid a glove on him the whole bout while Nate's boy played him like a piano. But it was soft music, and when it was over, neither of them had a mark. The crowd liked Burke at first on account of his speed. But they razzed him the last few rounds because it looked like he wasn't trying. The papers couldn't do nothing but give him the best of it, but said he wouldn't never get nowhere till he learned to punch. Nate had begged him all through to tear in and end it, but he might as well have tried to argue with Central. Well, Fitzsimmons was putting on a show over to Benton Harbor, and he wired Nate and asked him if he'd bring Burke there for a wind-up with a Grand Rapids boy named Hap Stein. This kid had met some of the best boys round Michigan and beat them all, and of course Burke could draw good in his hometown, especially after what he'd done to Porter. So Nate took Berkey over there, and Fitz asked Nate how the kid was coming, and Nate told him, One of the sweetest boxers I ever seen. But he ain't showed enough of a wallop to annoy a soap bubble. It's a funny thing, said Fitz, because he hit Porter just once and broke his jaw. And Charlie's jaw ain't glass, neither. I know a punch when I see one, and I doubt if Dempsey could hit harder than this bird plugged this baby. Well, says Nate, I wished we had the prescription. He made a monkey out of Harris at Milwaukee, but he wouldn't even slap him hard. And the boys he works out with, I've had them rough him so's he'd get mad, but it didn't do no good. I don't suppose so, says Fitz, because he wasn't sore at Porter. Charlie didn't even know him. But he had a reason to show Porter up, said Nate, and he told Fitz about the Rube gal. That's news to me, said Fitz. Maybe he'll only fight when they's a dame for a prize. Why don't you hire some chorus doll to vamp him and have her tell him she's his as soon as he's knocked all the other welters for a corpse? You don't know this bird, said Nate. Chorus gals would be beneath his notice. He wants a millionaire society bell, and I'd have a fat chance of getting one of them to play the part. Well, the bout with Stein was a farce. Berkey was so fast that Hap thought they'd ganged on him. But nothing Nate could say or do had any effect. He couldn't make the kid cut loose and punch. 4. When they'd be back in shy a couple of months and Burke had one more fight in Milwaukee, he made a monkey out of Jimmy Mason. Well, he began fretting and wanted to know how soon Nate was going to take him east. As soon as I can get you matched, said Nate. But if I do date you up down there... You'll have to cut out the cuddling and really fight, 
or they won't want you a second time. Maybe I'll be different down there, said Berkey. So along late in the fall, Nate got him matched with Battling Ego in Boston. Now here's your chance, Nate told him. I got Rickard's promise that if you trim Ego, he'll put you on in New York with Willie Kemp. And the man that beats Willie Kemp will get a whack at Britain and the big money. All Burke said was, How's Boston for gals? Any class to them? Not enough for you, says Nate. You'd be throwing yourself away. There's no doubt but that you could go down to Scully Square or Revere Beach and take your pick. But you'd be a sucker to do it. New York's the place. And suppose you get tied up to some Boston countess and then went to New York and went a couple of big bouts and got invited round to some of them big mansions on Mott Street or the Tenderloin. And next thing you know, you'd probably meet a dozen gals that never even heard of Boston. Then you'd wished you'd have been more careful and not financed yourself to no bean shooter. You read about the ego bout? I seen it. When they was all in the ring beforehand, Nate said to Ego, he says, Well, Bat, we've decided to let you stay three rounds. That'll be enough to give you a boxing lesson. But in the fourth round, you're going to hear music that'll rock you to sleep. Nate had heard that the battler wasn't no Lionheart, and this kind of gab fretted him. I'll rock him to sleep myself, he said, but his teeth was shimmy. Burke was just the same like in his other bouts. He wrote his name and address all over Ego's pan and convinced the battler that any time he wanted, he could knock him for a row of stumps. That went on for three rounds with Nate, as usual, begging the kid to put over a haymaker, and Burke paying no attention. So when the bell rung for the fourth, Nate hollered, Good night, Bat! And Ego thought, sure, he meant business. And he wasn't named after Nelson. So the first time Burke hit him in this round, he folded up like a bass singer's chin and flopped on the floor yelling foul. Well, we all seen the blow. It landed just under the green spot where he parks his collar button. And besides that, they wasn't no force to it. But Ego was through for the evening and the kid had win another soft one. Personally, I'd have rather took 50 socks on the jaw than the razzing the crowd gave Bat. Well, Nate was going to New York and stay a while, and he wanted to send Burke back to Shy to wait till they'd chose a date for the fight with Kemp. But Berkey said no. He could lay around New York as easy as Chicago, and if Nate wouldn't take him there, he was through. He says, Here I am, a coming champion, and what does it get me? I ain't having no fun. I want to meet some gals and dance with them and kid them. All right, come along, says Nate. But I wished you'd remember one thing. When you do meet them swell east side Janes, don't treat them like toys. They've got feelings as well as riches and wealth, and I would rather see Kemp or Britain knock you lopsided than see you win fame and leave a trail of broken hearts. I'm no flirt, says Berkey. I can't help what they feel towards me, but I won't lead them on, not unless I'm serious myself. Now you're talking like a man, says Nate. So they come to New York and stopped at the Spencer. Nate had a lot of business to tend to and guys to see, 
and he didn't want this rube chasing around with him all the while, so he turned him over to Jack Grace, the old lightweight. You know Jack, or at least you've heard of him. He'd kid Thomas A. Edison. Nate had tipped off Jack about Berkey, and the second day they was in the big town, Jack took the boy for a walk. Every time they passed a car with a good-looking gal in it, Burke would ask, Who's that? And Jack pretended like he knew them all. That's Gwendolyn Weasel, he'd say. Her old man owns part of the Grand Central Station, the lower level. And that one's Mildred Whiffletree, a niece of Bud Fisher, the ukulele king. And there's Honey Hive. She's a granddaughter of old man Bumble, the bee man. They got a big country place on Ellis Island. Where could a man meet these gals, asked Berkey. Nowhere's only at their home, said Jack. And there's no chance of you getting invited round yet for a while. Nobody knows who you are. But wait till you've hung one on this Kemp guy's chin, and I bet you'll have more invitations than a roach catcher. Well, Nate landed the Kemp match sooner than he expected. Rickard said he'd put Burke on with Willie for the wind-up three weeks from then, and he'd guarantee the winner a match with Britain. Nate had got what he was after, but he was worried sick. I know he can beat Kemp if he fights, he says, but i never yet been able to make him fight. And if he just babies along like he done in these other bouts, one of these New York referees is liable to say he ain't trying and stop the bout. Or if it does go to the limit, Kemp will get the decision because he'll punch harder. And Kemp will hit Burke, too. He's firing away the best boy my kid's ever been against. Too good to get showed up even by as fast and clever a boxer as Berkey. Our only chance is to make this little farmer slug, tear in there and sock him like he did Porter. But how we're going to do it is more than I know. End of chapter 8. A Frame-Up. Part 1.